the line between stupid and malevolent is just so, so fine. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my fellow hosts, who this week, as nearly every week, include tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibovitz. Shalom to you. And tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Hello. Our Gentile of the Week is Madeline Barron, host of the podcast In the Dark. And our Jew of the Week is Raviv Ullman, whom you may know from the Disney Channel series, Phil of the Future, but whom you might know soon as a Bible expert. So to those guests in a bit, but first I want to check in with my Chavirim, my friends, my Stephanie and my Liel. Stephanie Butnick, what is going on in your corner of the island of Manhattan? That is a great question. There's a great visitor in town. I don't know if you guys remember last year's conversion episode where I talked to my little, little and my little, little, little. Mm-hmm. Those are mm-hmm. words you need to say as often as possible. From your sorority. From my sorority, Kappa Kappa Gamma. Or as we call it, the Chapa Chapa Gamma. <laughs> what we talked about on that segment was how both of them were converting to Judaism, both on different journeys and really, really interesting stories. And this past weekend, my little, little Danny Potter came into town to go to the mikveh to finalize her conversion. And she and I got brunch. We went to Jack's wife, Frida, got a little bit of, uh, like a little South African Israeli comfort <laughs> food beforehand. And I'm so, so proud of her. She dunked. And as of this morning, she is one of us. She's always been one of us, but she is officially, officially one of us. My God, the team is so strong right now. Yeah. She's amazing. We're, we're like, I'm sorry, we're like the Brooklyn Nets. Like you're little, little, you're little, little, little. Like <laughs> Nelly Ball is like, we really, we have like, just the best players ever this year. Now, the question is the swag bag that you get after you you travel to New York City to dunk. What you get when you emerge from the mikvah, obviously, is a trip to Jack's wife, Frida, a game of mahjong, a free copy of the newest Jewish encyclopedia from your mikvah guide. They actually hand you that before they even tell you off. If we had any marketing acumen, like, say, the Mormons who got the shit down completely pat on how to They're sell so people tight. Yeah. on their religion, here's what we do. You go to the mikvah, and then as soon as you get out, they hand you, like, a carp and be like, here's your gefilte fish. They throw the fish into the mikvah or they give you a, you know, locks. It's just like some kind of... What I want is there should be a trumpet fanfare. Like you emerge and there's some trumpeters. I want them outside the building. Okay. Like when you get out on West 72nd Street of that fancy West Side mikvah. With your hair's wet, you emerge onto the street with your wet hair. Yeah, I mean, what I like, so I've only been to the mikvah once before I got married. And what you hear is like people going like, Sima Tovu, Mazel Tov, And you right. realize like the conversions have been completed. Everyone is sort of coming out and... It was just such a festive experience. Men's mikvot are so different. (laughs) It's like the men's locker room versus the women's locker room that has like candies, couches. So do you want to know the the God's honest truth of, I mean, I think the mikvah in Westville, as far as I know, has men's hours. But do you you want to know the God's honest truth of the mikvah in my neighborhood of Westville is my friend, the periodontist's swimming pool, which uh, functions as a mikvah. Obviously, it has natural water in it. It's open to the rain. And I've heard that some mornings every week, there's like Friday morning, there's some Hasidic guy who go at 7 a.m. and just do the full dunk in Dr. Wiener's backyard pool. Wait, that is amazing. Isn't that amazing? Dr. Wiener, (laughs) God bless you, man. I love that. However, the fact that he's actually not opening the pool this summer creates a problem for the mikvah routine of a number of people. He's going to be doing some traveling. He has some upkeep. You know, it's not it's not a hostile move. I just want to know that I think there should be a particular song and it shouldn't be Simon Tova Mazel Tov. I feel like that's that's for, you know, brises and B'nai Mitzvah and weddings. and You're advocating some Billy Joel there? Yeah. What about like, we welcome you to Point O'Pines, where am I? Like a camp song? <laughs> My mother did one year at Girls High of Philadelphia before transferring to Germantown High. She still knows the song. Do you guys want to hear the song? 
Yes. Sounds like we don't have a choice. I go to girls' high school, so pity me. There's not a boy in the vicinity. The, oh, I ran out. What do you got, Liel? So I don't have a fancy, glitzy Manhattan story like Stefani Butnick because I spent this week in the heartland, in real America, in the impossibly gorgeous city of Tulsa, Oklahoma. What really blew me away, it is one freaking attractive piece of God's green earth. And I get to this town and I know it's completely wrong. And I know there are a lot of Jews in Tulsa and I know there's a vibrant community. I know, I know all this. And yet something in my heart, as soon as I land in the airport says to me, this is going to be a little break. It's going to be just a little vacation away from the Jews, away from the Jewish life. I'm just going to be in real America, outside of the shtetl on the Upper West Side, I am going to be in Tulsa. So I go, I, I have this meeting, and it's this very professional guy, and he's talking, and it's fantastic. And then he says, well, now, if you'll excuse me, I, um, my husband and I are hosting Shabbos, and so I have to go cook. And I'm like, oh, wow, delightful. Okay, cool, thanks, Jews. Then there's a tour guide who is there to take me on the tour of Tulsa. This kid walks in, good-looking kid, 22 you know, Texas boots, killer mustache, this like really great Texas Western accent. He's like, well, figured uh, I'll, I'll take you and uh, show you the show. You know, like my uh, Bubby and Zadie and Queens, they always love it here when they come to visit. I was like, oh my <sighs> God, I can't get away. So I go to a coffee shop. The coffee shop is vegan. I ordered myself some soy latte something. Wait, so essentially you're in Brooklyn. It gets so much better because here's one thing that I don't know what would happen in Brooklyn. I, I put my phone on the table. You guys know this. On the back of my phone, there's a sticker of the great Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, who I genuinely love. Who, by the way, is non-recognizable to like 99.9% of the American Jewish population. <laughs> right. <laughs> American Jews usually, is that Bin Laden on your phone? <laughs> Is that the Ayatollah Khomeini? But this kid sees the phone and walks towards me. He's this cool-looking African-American dude. And he stands there and he looks at me. And he says in the most perfect Hebrew, Mama Tzavachi. <laughs> and I still look at him. I was like, kind of dumbstruck. And he points at the Ovadia. He's like, Rav Ovadia, met, met ala Rav Ovadia. And I look at him again, and then he tells me that he, he is an evangelical guy from Florida, but he took a Hebrew intensive summer language course and then traveled to Tel Aviv and loves everything about it, has been like 17 times, speaks like better Hebrew than I do, and just, you know, sat and hung out. Tulsa, oh I'm telling God. you, is is the new promised land. We should all move down there? Yeah. What are we doing here? Or at the very least, do a live show there and have all these people you've met be our guests. <laughs> We really should do a live show there. I want to go talk about my book there. And then I want to stay for a live show. I want to go to that coffee shop. We did a segment for one of our Jews Across America episodes about Tulsa with Rabbi Fitzerman, right? And and Micah Fitzerman Blue. I believe that's right. Brother of my friend Nina Fitzerman Blue. I should have known that that trouble was a should have known. When they said, oh, wow, we're so happy to have you here. Let's go to, you know, here's the restaurant. We'll be having dinner. And I was like, oh, great. What's the restaurant name? It's like, uh, the restaurant's called Oren. I was like, wait, what? It's like the restaurant, of course, is owned by Israelis. And of course, it's like the greatest restaurant ever with like amazing hummus and fatush. Let's go. Let's go. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J. News of the Jews. 
news of the Jews. So this was making the rounds of the Facebook group this week. The picture of the ham sold by the Golub company. It was at the Price Chopper, which is interestingly enough, what they call a moyle in upstate New York. <laughs> Here's your Price Chopper. And the photograph showed a ham with a little OU kosher symbol on it. This is problematic. Did anyone ever get to the bottom of what happened? Do we think that the company, Golub Products, probably Jewish-owned? Yeah, it is Jewish-owned. Someone chimed in our Facebook group being like, it's from my town. It's a Jewish family. I think there's actually a lot of products that get these things. There's like the U, there's the K. I mean, people sort of just like find these on their products. I don't know how it happens. I'm kind of obsessed with like the kosher industrial complex and want to know more and want someone to explain it to me. You think someone just went online and just looked for like cool, hey, the organic symbol, the kosher symbol. Yeah, this is for you. That's what I'm going to put the U on there. It's O-U, organic for you. Well, wait a second. If they're putting O-U on the packaging, that's pretty intentional. I mean, you don't just slap letters on packaging. They... I'm just trying to imagine the the sequence of events where, I mean, you don't put no GMOs, no genetically modified organisms or gluten-free because you think it signals a lifestyle choice. I mean, you put it there presumably if you know your product is gluten-free. I don't, nobody's that stupid. Look, in the statement released last week, the Orthodox Union's kosher division says the Orthodox Union does not certify picks ham. <laughs> Some packaging bears an unauthorized OU. This product is being withdrawn from the marketplace. I have to say this was worth it for the jokes that spun out on Twitter. Like this was like Jewish. <laughs> Twitter's the entertainment value alone. And I also I don't know how many people were going to buy the ham because they saw the coat like how many kosher keepers accidentally right. bought ham because it was labeled kosher. Like I don't it's like, think look, look, Shlomo, your prayers have been answered. This wasn't like the genetically modified bacon that's gonna be kosher. This I don't think this actually caused any real harm to anyone in the community. In any community, except for the ham community. Javi, it's it's croque monsieur for dinner tonight, Javi. It's just so funny. I will say, because this looks like it was indeed the work of a price chopper supermarket. Having spent much time last year in a price chopper supermarket in upstate New York, Tulsa probably has a, a full line of kosher meat. Tulsa has everything. Do you like a first cut or second cut kosher brisket with that? Do you love my southern accent? My Tulsa accent? We're going to work on your flyover country accent. <laughs> uh, you could have the kosher brisket or not have the brisket. I have a question, Leo. Yes. Never occurred to me before now. In Israel, are there regional accents? Now, obviously, there's oh, accents that the, that the Yiddish speakers, you know, if you're Haredi and Yiddish is your first language, obviously, there are accents if Hebrew is not your native language. But let's say you're a secular, relatively secular, born Israeli Hebrew speaker. Do you speak it differently in the north than in the Negev or something? Fantastic question. There's only one regional accent. There's only one group of people who use different words and pronounce them differently than, than the rest of us. And those would be Jerusalemites. For example, if I wanted to say the number 200, right? In normal Israeli parlance, that's matayim. For Jerusalemites, it's ma'atayim. Hmm. It's additional syllables there. Plus, they literally have a different word for almost anything. This at least was the case when I was growing up. I think, you know, TV and social media might have flattened everything. But those cats, all you could always tell a Jerusalemite by, by the way she spoke. That is so interesting. So if you're like fighting the boars in Haifa, you sound the same as if like the boars were to come to Tel Aviv and you were going to fight them there. Yeah, but then you play the popular game Gogoim and you say that to your friend from Jerusalem and they say, oh, you mean Ajuim? I was like, no, I don't mean that at all. Like, why would you use strange made up words? You don't live that far. You live 40 minutes away. That's so petty and perfect. I right. love that so yeah. much. Yeah. Also in the bizarre news of the 
Well, it's not even news of the Jews. It's really news of the Gentiles this week from the website Insider. Quote, after a prolonged outburst on social media, YouTuber, I still can't get over that that's a thing, but okay, YouTuber, my kids insist that it is, YouTuber Trisha Paytas has apologized for using offensive language about Jewish people and denied being anti-Semitic. The apology was prompted by Paytas releasing screenshots of their own text messages that show them using the word Jewy to describe their Jewish podcast co-host during a monetary negotiation. So Paytas, who uses the pronouns they and them, hosts a podcast called Frenemies with co-host Ethan Klein, and they were in negotiations over money stuff, and they were texting back and forth, and Paytas said to Ethan Klein something like, don't be so Jewy. In response to this article, Paytas tweeted, I've dated Jewish men my entire adult life and I'm currently converting. To not allow me to grow and learn when I've apologized time and time again is really not cool. And is in fact only the kind of thing that people who are used to Jewing other people down like the money-grubbing <laughs> he bastards that they are would ever do. Just saying. So this is one of those people who I have to say, like, Trisha, this name has come up before and a lot of like Jewish social media people are like, Trisha Paytas is like anti-Semitic. Like just saying, there's, it, this comes up every few months, some sort of like thing that is said by this person who I don't, still don't really like want to take the time to commit to understand. But people get mad about it. But I do think I've dated Jewish men my entire life is not the defense you want to fall back on. I mean, Trisha tweeted, I'm literally converting to Judaism right now. Literally right now. Right now. It is happening. Happen. It's <laughs> happening from the mikvah. I'm holding one hand up. <laughs> <laughs> Above the water. <laughs> like actually going through the classes, learning the religion, and all caps, converting. Also, my kids can grow up with Jewish culture and religion. So I, I'm a little confused by this one because you're like, why are you saying this weird stuff? What does the conversion have to do with your belief that you can say these things? I think this is really upsetting. I mean, you know me. I'm, I'm always Mr. Forgiveness, right? I mean, I understand people say stuff that they don't mean. I've done it. I believe that people are all on a journey towards being their best selves and that we have to forgive and that it's, I, I'm just, I'm not into firing people. I'm not into people losing their platforms. I'm into hugging it out, having a kumbaya and moving on, right? But this is really creepy because here's someone, if we take them at their word that they are in the midst of converting and learning a good bit about Jewish culture and for all we know, no more prayer and history and Aleph Bet, Hebrew alphabet than the average American Jew, which is entirely possible, but still unconsciously have these these stereotypes, right? That if they're getting in a fight about money, the thing you go to is stop being so Jewy. That's really upsetting because I don't want people in the religion and I don't want people thinking it's okay to say, well, I checked all these boxes. I learned, you know, I can, it's the Tim Watley, right? I converted for the jokes. Hey, Tim. George, you know Tim Watley. Yeah, dentist to the stars. <laughs> what's up? I'll tell you what's up. I'm a Jew. <laughs> Excuse me? I'm a Jew. I finished converting two days ago. Oh, well, welcome aboard. <laughs> hey, uh, were you just at the health club? Oh, yeah. No, we must have just missed you. Ah, well, I didn't do much. I just sat in the sauna. You know, it was more like a Jewish workout. <laughs> That's it. Tim, do you think you should be making jokes like that? Oh, Jerry, it's our sense of humor that sustained us as a people for 3,000 years. 5,000. 5,000, even better. And then he asked the assistant for a shtickle of fluoride. Why are you so concerned about this? I'll tell you why. Because I believe Watley converted to Judaism just for the jokes. I don't want people saying, I've done a certain amount of work. Therefore, I can just give free reign to these 
prejudices. And, and this one seems really ugly. You don't, when you go to don't be so Jewy with someone whom you're having a financial dispute with, yeah. that's ugly. Yeah. You're saying we have enough asshole Jews. We don't need more asshole Jews. Kind of. That's kind of what I'm saying, right? Stay out of the club. Stay out of the <laughs> We're not going to have the trumpet fanfare when you exit the mikvah is what no. we're saying. But you know, that said, if um, YouTube superstar Trisha Paytas wants to come on our show and talk it out, uh, we will welcome them. Well, I will say as uh, someone who's dated YouTube viewers his entire life and who's converting <laughs> right now to be a YouTuber, I think all YouTubers are really fucking stupid. <laughs> My kids will give you a smackdown for that. And they say this with love. Much of the time, they aspire to be professional YouTubers. Finally, also in the well-meaning category, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger last seen staring down Donald Trump over election results, tweeted out on June 6th, Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, is a somber day of introspection for the Jewish people. It's a good chance for everyone to reflect on their past year and how they can make the coming one better, have an easy fast. Which is true. <laughs> in September, so in Tishrei. <laughs> Not in Sivan, I mean, my look, man. This, this tweet went out at 10 a.m. on June 6th. That's <laughs> leading up to one of the longest days of the year. That was going to be a very long Yom Kippur fast <laughs> for someone who saw that and decided, oh, crap, I forgot to fast. By the way, the same people who take their kosher ham recommendations from the supermarket meat aisle also take their holiday recommendations from the Georgia Secretary of State. I love this so much because this is sort of the, the complete inverse of the Trisha Paytas story, right? Like, you have someone who's going so far out of their way to be sensitive to the Jews, um, and you're just like, who taught you that? And the funny thing was, like, wasn't even near any holiday. Liel, you're our holiday expert. Like, were we near a fast day at all with Som Gedalia coming up? Like, Som Gedalia is not coming up. I mean, Gimel Tamas, we did, I don't want to say celebrate, we commemorated the Lubavitcher Rebbe's Yerzeit this Sunday. Joe Biden has not yet filled the job of, of liaison to the Jewish communities. I sense that Brad Raffensperger has not yet filled that job either. I don't think he has a, a Jew in the office. Listen to me. There is a golden opportunity at hand. Secretary Raffensperger, listen to me, man. You made an honest mistake. It's very funny. However, there is a way that you could make up for it. And, and it is this. Could you please have the great state of Georgia declare Tzom Gedalia, the official fast day of unorthodox, <laughs> to be an official fast day in the state of Georgia? If you do that, sir... We will not only come and have a live event in the state of Georgia, we, we would literally would do whatever for that to happen. Whatever it takes to get some Gedalia recognized in Georgia. <laughs> that would be unreal. We could get John Ossoff involved, see if he can help us get some some juice juice up in there. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're ready. I like this idea, by the way, that Yom Kippur is like twice a year. Oh my God. That we have like our summer Yom Kippur and our fall Yom Kippur. But could it be half a day fast? If it's twice a year, could I fast on each day for half the day? Right, do an intermittent fasting plan and just have it like- Intermittent. Twelve like twice hours, a year. twelve days out of the year. Yeah. <laughs> Our next guest, Ravi Volman, started off having the kind of career that really I should have had because it was me who should have been a star on the Disney Channel. But it was Raviv. He is best known for playing Phil Diffie on the early aughts Disney Channel hit Phil of the Future. But we are most excited to speak with him not only about his Disney career, but about his new and amazing podcast, The Study where he discusses the weekly Torah portion with guests like Broad City's Ilana Glazer and Mayim Bialik and other beloved Jews and Gentiles alike. Here he is, Raviv Ullman.
Welcome to Unorthodox, Raviv. Why, thank you. What an honor to be here. I'm, it's crazy. I'm like on the show. I'm on the Jewish show. I've made it. I really am so excited to talk to you because I love your show, The Study. I also know you from your sort of former life as a Disney star. And so I, I think you probably have one of the most unusual post-Disney star trajectories. Yeah, if that's what you'd call it. Some might not call it a trajectory at all, just a meandering, perhaps. There's like the Miley Cyrus route, and then there's like the Parsha podcast, Torah scholar route. Exactly, and there's nothing in between. And by the way, only one of them leads to heaven, just saying. <laughs> sorry, Miley. Sorry, not sorry. So what I would love to just sort of get started with is, could you tell us a little bit about your journey, your life growing up, how you got on TV? TV, and then sort of how you got to where you are today. Just start from the beginning. I was born in Israel on a little kibbutz, Kibbutz Yahel, about 45 minutes north of Eilat. My parents were wonderful hippies in their 20s, and, and I was born there. We came back, and my father was always in the arts. I mean, he he was a clown, a professional clown in Israel. He sang songs, sang guitar and banjo growing up at our shul. And then my grandfather on my mom's side, may he rest in peace, was an Orthodox rabbi and was this incredible orator and storyteller. And and so I was I grew up around storytelling and entertainment, I guess. And somehow that gave me the interest in theater and telling stories. And so when I was really young, like eight years old or so, I, I started doing local theater and theater camps. That turned into getting a manager and doing more local and regional theater. And then the job for the Disney show was just kind of another audition. At that point, I'd been doing the thing for years. And, you know, at that point, I was going to public school in Fairfield, Connecticut, and all of a sudden found myself in Los Angeles on a Disney show, which kind of upended everything. But in a great way, it's kind of exactly what I guess I had been working towards. And then since then, have just kind of been trying to make as many interesting things as I can. I mean, I've done other TV shows. I did a lot of guest spots on like every cop and doctor show for a while. As you do, if you're a New Yorker, you've been on every Law & Order. And gosh, in terms of the podcast, had been hosting Shabbats a lot, both in New York and Los Angeles, and have a big community here, both Jews and non-Jews. And we would have big, big Shabbat dinners and Devar Torres started kind of seeping in there. And especially as the world started getting weirder and weirder, I would use the Torah portion as a broad stroke kernel of an idea. How do we talk about today's society? How do we start a conversation? And then the pandemic hit. And the idea was to make it into a podcast and be able to be in conversation with rabbis and thinkers and academics all over the world and make cool episodes about Torah portions. And I personally, since I was a little kid, I went to a Hebrew day school when I was very young. And I haven't really studied Torah since then. And definitely my Judaism is secular and cultural at best, at least was for a long time. And so this is kind of like a, a new look at what the, kind of the, the basis for, I guess, what this is all about. I mean, this to me is one of the most surprising and delightful thing about the podcast because you hear, I mean, if all you're given is the premise, you know, actor launches spiritual podcast you think like yeah. oh oh i know what this is but your guest host on every show is is a rabbi and there's actual serious dedication to the study of text right so i'm i'm wondering as you start to sort of formulate this show as someone who's so attuned to performance right I imagine that there must have been a thought somewhere in the mix that says like, hey, man, let's just make it quick, entertaining, like give a little nugget that people could could go on to. But it almost goes like decidedly the opposite direction. Not that it's not 
enormous fun to listen to. But but this is a very serious, committed, studious, no pun intended, show. I really, really appreciate that. And that was the idea from the beginning. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's hard to give the elevator pitch because it sounds like I'm doing a Bible study podcast, which kind of in a way it is, but not in the traditional way. I mean, being able to bring on the director of the Sleep and Dream Institute to talk about the science of dreaming when the colonel is Jacob's dreams, bringing on a professor of smells and the history of smells and religion and trying to understand what that means or is, bringing on Dr. Melina Abdullah, co-founder of Black Lives Matter LA, when talking about Exodus, we are trying to engage with the world around us, which is really, really difficult right now through the lens of a kernel of an idea in the Torah. And sometimes it's fun and sometimes it's more serious. But I, being totally transparent, never stepped a day in college. I, I finished high school, have my diploma, but didn't go to college. And I love academia. I love studying and I love being around a table. Right. Because you didn't go to college. Because I didn't go to college. Had I gone, this never would have happened. I wouldn't have been here. They would have cured you of that love. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'm trying to make up for lost time. But I pre- I really appreciate that. We're trying to make something that's, um, for me, it's just trying to be honest with the things that I want to learn and the kind of Judaism that I want to engage with, which is serious at times and and fun. It can be all of it. So on one of your episodes, you say that, you know, the show, which you started in September 2020, has sort of helped you keep track of time during the pandemic or mark the passage of time. And to me, that seems like, you know, I'm not someone who knows the weekly Parsha and I do like to I dabble with, you know, shows like yours where sort of I can access these these really relevant stories. But it's not part of my practice, as you might say. But to me, the weekly Parsha has sort of been doing this for Jews for centuries, right? Like helping us mark the passage of time in a very literal way. And so I feel like you're part of this generation that's sort of taking back these trends that rooted Jews for so long and, and trying to find some rootedness in our own modern, disconnected, hyperconnected at the same time life. I mean, absolutely. And that's something that I realized I was trying to access before I took a deeper dive back into the roots of Judaism was ritual and spirituality and groundedness and meditation. Like, I feel like our generation is looking for a way to be grounded, especially in the past year and a half, looking for a way to tune into themselves and their communities. And ritual is such a huge part of that. And as I tried to figure out how best to do that and plug into to my own self and my community, I was like, oh, there is this book club that's been going on for thousands (laughs) of years and offers all of these things. (laughs) Yes, exactly. We get to build on like wisdom of scholars for thousands of years and get to discuss that and what does that even mean and all of the problems that come with it, right? It's not just great, what do the scholars of Judaism say? But also we can actually sometimes trace racism, misogyny, like all of these problems back to some of this text. And you start to see, oh, maybe that's where this began. And how do we start to unpack a lot of modern day problems in society by, I think, by going back and seeing perhaps where some of it began. So it's definitely not all a celebration of Torah and Bible, but trying to take an honest, progressive, new look at what all these things mean and getting to do it with people like Alana Glazer or, you know, like, and a rabbi. One thing that I noticed looking at great actors is that they're not so much pretending to be someone else, which is a silly way to look at it, but, but rather really opening themselves up and channeling these complex, intricate emotional currents that really kind of capture an essence. Here you are, you're channeling, in a way, all these scholars and rabbis and, and, and thinkers, not to mention the text itself. How does that change you? I mean, emotionally, is there a moment in which you find yourself 
a week in, three weeks in, five weeks in saying, I just don't feel this. I mean, I'm, I'm feeling something happening to me that's not just an intellectual level. Hey, that's very interesting. You would never know that such and such was the origins of so-and-so. But like on a real profound personal emotional level. For me, I think that change or that aliveness comes from being in conversation with the people that I get to be in conversation with. I don't know if you guys feel this with the show, but being able to have the opportunity to speak with professors from all over the country and thought leaders and people who are grounded in their own study and bring that wisdom. That's been the really exciting thing for me. And you know, our podcast team is incredibly small. It's myself and my incredible producer, Evan. And probably once a day, I go back and forth between thinking this is way too much work and this is insane and whose idea was this? And then I get to have the conversation or we prep a conversation and I'm just so grateful to have the opportunity to speak to all of these people that I'm getting to speak to. I mean, I definitely play the role, I feel like, in the show of the dummy, just trying to understand what it's all about. But I do feel awakened. I feel alert, alive, awakened, enthusiastic after being able to speak to some of our guests, to all of our guests, really. And I think that has changed me. And it's given me through the past year and a half or so a way to like I say, plug into all of these things and and collaborate. It was such a lonely year. Even, you know, you, we had our little communities or our pods or whatever it was, but collaborating with new people. I just got off of this insane shoot. We shot an opera miniseries. Boston Lyric Opera commissioned an opera miniseries that we just shot out in the desert with this incredible cast and group of people. It was the first time I'd collaborated in person with people in the past year and a half. But the podcast has offered like collaboration. So yeah, how, how is that different? How is stepping off a movie set or a TV set or a shoot in which you collaborate with other people, is it fundamentally different than sitting and doing this collaboration that revolves around Torah study? Or do you feel they're just kind of two similar emotional experiences that sort of meld and, and jive with each other? The similarities are in... So my favorite thing when rehearsing a play, probably my favorite process in creative endeavors generally, is the first couple days of play rehearsal when you sit when you do the table work and you sit around and you tear through the text and you open it up and you ask all the really hard questions like why are we doing this and this part doesn't make sense to me and you just tear the text apart and with a really good play the deeper you dive the more it makes sense especially with new plays sometimes you start to tear it apart and it starts to kind of unravel quickly and the torah kind of is that's where the Venn diagram is for me is that in tearing it apart the deeper you dive the more it offers and that's like a good play that's like a good film that's like a good collaboration is that as you start to unravel the problematic pieces of a creative endeavor that whoever comes to the table brings something exciting and something new and cool new perspectives or points out wisdom that's been brought to the table before. And that's the work that's really exciting to me. I remember when I got the text from a friend that said, did you know Phil of the Future has a Torah podcast? <laughs> and I feel like that's probably a little annoying for you. I was sort of like, I did not. I don't know much of what that sentence means, but I want to know entirely. I need to know what that means. You know, you have like 125,000 followers on Instagram. A lot of them, I imagine, come from your acting days. I imagine some of them are also there for your sort of Jewish textual conversations. And so I'm wondering, you know, who do you feel like your audience is now? And you're sort of like Revive Ricky Ullman. So like, 
Was there a point at which you stopped being Ricky in an acting capacity and became Raviv? Like, how does that name signify any of those those sort of different dimensions of your life? When I started acting, I was going out for lots of auditions. I looked like a all-American eight-year-old boy. And my manager was like, you're just not getting in the room because casting directors see Revive and cross your name out because it sounds too ethnic for what you look like. And so we changed it to Ricky. And my first role was in this terrible action movie where I played Aziz, the Muslim boy. And then we kept going and I finally started auditioning for the American parts and getting those here and there. And there was something interesting about the separation between, especially when I was working for Disney and went under Ricky, the celebrity nature of it felt apart from me because if we did an event or something, somebody would call me Ricky and that just didn't feel like me. Anybody who knows me, my family, my friends, everybody on set called me Revive. I never went by Ricky personally. And at a certain point post-Disney, I think I did an episode of House. And I was like, this is going to be the one. I'm going to change my name back officially on my SAG card and go by Revive. I would like to be proud of this. I would like to feel attached to this work personally. And gosh, that was maybe in 2007 or something. And since then, I've been Revive again. So Revive is definitely what I identify as. Ricky feels like a relic from some insane past that I've lived. In terms of engagement with, say, Instagram followers, it's something that I don't understand. The only version that I know how to practice is to be true to myself, I guess, which includes weird photography and being in plays and loving musical theater and studying Torah. And like, I've given no thought to brand awareness or what that even means. And I probably should, right? Like in this day and age, and maybe you guys can help me with that. But the only version that I know is like, I'm, these are the things I'm interested in. And if you are too, then follow along. No, that's amazing. And our listeners can follow along with the study podcast. New episodes are out each Friday featuring our new friend, Raviv Ullman. It is such a treat to talk to you. What an honor. Thank you so much for your time. And I'm just so happy to be here and big fan, big fan. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. 
You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox. I was smacked down in the mailbox this week. I I can't even read this. Does one of you want to bury me in shame? I can't. Oh, I will bury you in shame. From the unimprovably named Barry Tinkleman. Hey, Mark Oppenheimer. Contrary to your podcast report, B.B. Netanyahu did not grow up in Lower Marion. Rather, he lived in... Cheltenham, Pennsylvania, and well to Cheltenham High School. Love the podcast. Been listening since number one. Okay, so that is from Barry Tinkleman on Facebook. And then our friend Anne writes to say, hello from your avid podcast listener in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania. I just finished listening to the most recent episode and I have to correct you. Where I live is located in Cheltenham Township. Benjamin Netanyahu graduated from Cheltenham High School, the same high school my children went to. And here, Beth Shalom Synagogue is located. He did not grow up in that filthy, vile pit of despair. This is my addition, Laura Marion. I hope that you will make the correction, especially in light of the fact that you spend an evening with us virtually. Thank you for continuing to brighten my podcast listening each week. Your friend, Anne. Anne and Barry, we, we apologize for Mark's ignorance. Liel, I have to own. So first of all, of course, we spent that beautiful night with, with Beth Sholem Synagogue in Elkins Park. I have to own this. So of course, having, I think, rightly and proudly made much of my Philadelphia yeches, my mother, of course, an alumna of Germantown High School, my grandfather of Roxborough High School, it is inexcusable. Given the number of cheesesteaks I used to eat at Dallas Andrews in Roxborough, it is inexcusable that I got this wrong, Okay. Of course, Elkins Park, which is split between Cheltenham and Abington Townships, but is often talked about as if it's coextensive with Cheltenham and whose kids go to Cheltenham High School, much as my friend Willard Spiegelman did, much as Vera Malamud's daughters did. She, of course, my grandfather's companion for the last 10 years of his life after my grandmother died. Your your grandfather, Bernard Malamud. (laughs) I know from Elkins Park, also being proudly and lovingly related to my first cousin, Lee Kirshner, who is a resident of Lower Marion and, of course, former president of Harzion Synagogue. Like, it is inexcusable that I would confuse Cheltenham and Lower Marion. And the shame is mine. The repair will have to be mine. The tikkun will have to be mine. The teshuva will have to be mine. And all I can say is to all the people of the Philly suburbs, I've let you down and I am sorry. And I hope you will forgive me. Well, luckily, Yom Kippur just happened. So you're you're right on you're right in the window. I don't think the book has closed yet, according to Georgia. In Georgia, the polls are right. still open for Yom Kippur apologies. I think this is funny because we had the hottest takes, as I mentioned last week, on the Israeli election, which is that Bibi does not speak perfectly accented English or unaccented English, I should say. And now you're just creating drama and has nothing to do with Israel's newest coalition, which I don't think we talked about today. Were we supposed to talk about that? Yeah, there's a coalition. <laughs> 
<laughs> P.S. BB, BB is out. The thing we talked about last week about how BB was going to be out, it happened. The Pennsylvania guy out and the Montreal-raised guy in. I like it. Is that where Naftali Bennett's from, Montreal? Well, he was born in Haifa, but then moved to Montreal when he was four. So uh, Canada, you win this round. <laughs> But not for long. I love the idea that Knesset is now going to be serving Montreal-style bagels as opposed to the Cheltenham specialty that we will surely hear about. If I may, politically, as someone who likes BB, that's exactly what he just got. You got a freaking Montreal-style bagel. Smaller, (laughs) sweeter, not really a bagel. You went from a Philly cheesesteak to a Montreal bagel. Maybe a little more religious, but far less tasty. Look at that. Look at that political commentary from Mark Oppenheimer. How you like that? <laughs> Mark Oppenheimer so rarely steps into Israeli politics, just summed it all up. Gentile of the week is Madeline Barron. She's an investigative reporter for APM Reports and the host of the podcast In the Dark. Her reporting for the show exposed racial discrimination by prosecutors and helped lead the Supreme Court to overturn the conviction of a black man on death row in Mississippi. Here's our conversation with Madeline Barron. Madeline, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We're a little bit in awe of you because your work has done just such amazing things. Your coverage of the criminal justice system. I mean, Curtis Flowers is a name that everyone knows now because of your show. Can you tell us a little bit about who Curtis Flowers is and what season two of In the Dark uncovered about his his story? So Curtis Flowers is a man from Mississippi. And in the 1997, he was arrested and charged with the murders of four people in a small town furniture store in Winona, Mississippi. He was convicted and sentenced to death and spent more than 20 years locked up, was tried six times, kept being convicted, kept appealing, kept winning his appeal, same prosecutor the whole time. And then very recently, Supreme Court overturned his conviction. He's out. He actually just got married a couple of weeks ago. Oh my God, that's so exciting. When you got into radio, was it this kind of work that you wanted to do or was it particular tips or cases that you ended up following for two seasons of this podcast that led you into this subspecialty? The only reason I wanted to be a reporter was to do investigative journalism. So, I mean, I definitely did other kinds of reporting. Like I was a general assignment reporter for a while And then I got a job as an online reporter for a local public radio station, which does not make a whole lot of sense. And in that sort of confusion of having unclear job duties and many editors, I sort of was able to do investigative reporting on the side and then eventually did that all the time and then moved over to this national team that American Public Media created. And I was always interested in the criminal justice system, but not to the exclusion of everything else. What is interesting to me about it is that there really is no greater power than the power to take someone's life. And in the United States, you can do that. If you're you know, a prosecutor, you can seek the death penalty. And you know, there's loss of liberty. There's all kinds of other ways that the legal system can have control over you. But there's certainly a lot of possibility for abuse of power. So I reported on a lot of different aspects of the criminal justice system, like junk science or a medical examiner. I reported on a crime lab, a police crime lab that was running drug testing machines Turns out that the drug testing machines themselves were contaminated with drugs, which is a problem. (laughs) 
So I, I'm really curious. You go into this thinking, I'm an investigative reporter. I'm going to ask all the right questions and I'm going to tell all these stories. But then as you go along, I think that you kind of uncover the profound brokenness of so much of the tenets of our very civic society. Does there come a point in which the pride that you take in your work sort of sours into despair because you realize just how broken everything is? I didn't realize that with the flowers case. I mean, I kind of knew that going in. But I will say that one of the things that's very depressing is to think about how many people might also be in Curtis Flowers' situation. And so as a journalist, my job is to do a story or many stories or something. I can't fix the criminal justice system or something. You know, it's, it's so it's, it is sad to continue to get letters from people and just hear about people who appear to be clearly innocent, who are still locked up or who just got out having spent many decades in prison. There's always that kind of quality to investigative reporting, but I guess it's not really unique to that. I feel like maybe, you know, an ER doctor has an even worse situation, more literally. You know, I just help this person and in comes the next person. Right, but don't you have also kind of the added weight of, why are you writing me letters? I'm a reporter. I'm not an ER surgeon. I'm not someone who's part of the system. I'm just someone who should just, you know, be telling you these sort of stories that then convince the system itself or put pressure on the system to reform. Do, do you feel extra added pressure as you read all these letters now because you've become who you've become? Not pressure because the reality is that we do one story, we follow it for several years. I've been dealing with this issue for a while. You know, there's lots of people that pitch you stories that seem like good stories. I mean, one of the things that we will do often if someone writes to us is we will, if it's not something that's going to work for us, We'll try to refer them to someone else. And often it's a local reporter in a newsroom or something like that. You know, and we're also like not in the exoneration business. So we're not the Innocence Project. When we started reporting on Curtis's case, we didn't, the goal wasn't to get him out of prison. The goal was to answer this really basic investigative reporting question, which was, why has Curtis Flowers been tried six times for the same crime? Like if we can all accept that that is unusual and perhaps not good, well, how did that come to happen? You know, that he was tried so many times. And then, of course, the answer has to do with all kinds of things, namely the power of the prosecutor, but also the role of racism, the role of forensic science. I mean, it's really, though, I mean, if there is a main character in the story, it might be the DA, Doug Evans, and not Curtis Flowers. I think we all sort of know that print journalism does great things, right? You uncover the conditions at the factory and or the plant and... Then there's a law that goes into effect that sort of helps that. I mean, it's so, so different, I think. I think we're still sort of understanding what it means for audio journalism to do the same thing because we, I feel like I know Curtis Flowers by the end of this, this season. I mean, I feel like I know all the people who were somehow manipulated into testifying against him. I feel like I understand the issues of race and class and power that were ongoing in this story. I mean... Do you think the humanity, the compelling aspect of audio is what pushed these things along in a way that print really can't do? I mean, I think print can do that, too. I mean, I do think there's something, I mean, we're in this moment where, like, the technology is there, first of all. But then also, it's like, if you go to an audio conference, you'll hear this so many times, you'll be like, okay, fine, the intimate power of audio. But it is true that there is something unique about having a solitary listening experience, but I, actually it's kind of similar to a solitary reading experience. There is a way, though, where audio is able to bring you deeper into a story. You can kind of lose yourself in the story. With Curtis, it was because we couldn't talk to him because I never was able to interview him until he got out. It was really important that people understand who he was and, and form connections of different kind. I mean, they're going to form connections with everybody in the story and certainly also with Curtis, or in this case, really his parents, who I spent a lot of time with. 
When I was in a public radio newsroom, when I was doing investigative work, it was sometimes frustrating because you just did not have that much time. Like the standard story is four minutes. Maybe you get eight and in exceptional circumstances, like really exceptional, you might get 12. And maybe you can do an hour-long documentary that airs a couple of times. And that's highly unusual. So you don't have a lot of great options. You always sort of knew, like, I'm sure that the listener wants to hear a more in-depth version of this, you'd say to yourself. Maybe it's sort of self-serving because you want to make one. But I think that what podcasting has shown is that people do really want to engage in an in-depth way with these stories and understand that you can't tell this story in four minutes or 12 minutes. And honestly, I don't know that, I mean, you could tell the story, a version of it in an hour, but not with all the stuff that we found out. I mean, you could tell the story of Curtis Flowers, but you couldn't do investigative reporting and also tell that. I remember when I was growing up in Springfield, Massachusetts, pretty much everyone got the daily paper and it covered Springfield and probably a dozen local communities around it. And, you know, there were several dozen reporters on those communities. Today, when I think of my educated friends who think of themselves as very, very in touch with the news, almost none of them gets a local news source, but they listen to NPR they listen to In the Dark and they listen to Serial and they have a tremendous base of current events knowledge, but almost none of it is local. I wonder if you're concerned about the collapse of local news in the way that print reporters are because radio, of course, can do, as you point out, so many fewer stories. I mean, there's just not that much time and they're covering a much wider basis. So does there have to be kind of a synergy between, say, a public radio station that might cover half a state and what used to be these local print outlets? How do, we, how do you think about how we can fill that gap? Yeah, I mean, that is something that concerns me a lot. I mean, one of the things that we did with season two of In the Dark is that we had versions of the story appear in the Clarion Ledger, which is the largest newspaper in Mississippi. That was important to us. We had the local paper in Greenwood, Mississippi, which is like 25 minutes west of Winona, also ran stories about what we were finding out. This is like one of my biggest concerns about journalism, the collapse of local news. I mean, when people don't subscribe to their local paper, it begins this spiral where it's like people don't subscribe to their paper. The paper has less money. The paper can do less. The person says, there's no reason for me to subscribe. I never read any news in this thing. And down and down and down it goes. And then there's all kinds of other issues at play too. But but it's a terrible problem because when you think about it, yeah, you might have, you know, perfectly fine national news, international news, but the sort of basic government that affects your life, like the local police, the prosecutor, the mayor, the head of the school board, the parks person, the politics that govern most of your life from like when you wake up and go out and come back, most of those are local. And so to not know anything about that and to yet go about the world, it doesn't make sense to me. And also that's exactly the kind of issue that allow, like when that's the case, of course, that allows people to abuse their power tremendously because no one even knows that it's going on. I mean, there used to be in a lot of places, a court reporter who would just hang out in the courthouse and maybe there's like an interesting trial, but maybe there's also just kind of like routine goings on. And that reporter knows the judges and knows the defense attorney. So something like super egregious hopefully wouldn't just happen without literally anyone knowing about it. But nowadays, like most of the time, there are no reporters in most courthouses. Who knows what's going on in there? Like who knows? No one's hanging out in most police departments or, you know, listening to the scanner, going to the place that seems like the big crime. Like that's just not happening in a lot of places. And that's a huge problem. Like one of the main things that we looked at with, with season one and season two, we looked at local powerful people. Like in season one, it was really about police not being able to solve crime and how that was the case in one case, but also it's a larger problem in the U.S., and that was in, you know, a semi-rural place in Minnesota. And then season two is about this prosecutor who's not the prosecutor of like Chicago or L.A. It's the prosecutor of the Fifth Circuit Court in Mississippi, North Central Mississippi. 
like a place where there are reporters, but not, there are very few reporters. I mean, there's like a handful of reporters working for local publications that are like doing everything. Like they're doing the whole paper themselves. So on the flip side, when you come in with your your recording equipment, you're not from there. I mean, did you, was there suspicion that you faced? I mean, was it hard for you to break in with the, with the local community? I imagine the prosecutorial side doesn't want to talk to you, but what about the people of Winona? I mean, mostly at first there was this novelty factor. Here you are living your life in a town of a few thousand people where, you know, you really know everybody or at least you recognize them. So like you can tell like that person's not from the town or whatever. It was funny, I think, in the beginning, like, this is interesting. And then over time, it became like, wow, these ladies are staying here a long time. Like, it's been three days and they're still here. You know, it's like, oh, you have no idea. And then after a while, you know, I mean, we spent a total of about three years on this story. I wasn't doing any other reporting on any other story. So I lived there for nearly a year and then returned many times for like, in some cases, lengthy periods of time. So we just sort of became part of the sort of backdrop of the town. It's like, me, myself, and Natalie, our producer, people would be like, Madeline, Natalie, Madeline, like whatever their names are, they're similar and they like work <laughs> together. But I think one of the advantages of being able to live in a place is that, I mean, it's not normal to like show up and be like, tell me everything. You know, it's, that's that's not realistic. So if you can live in a place and get to know people and then over time, they'll learn to trust you in a normal human way, which is through knowing you and through seeing you interact with other people and hearing about you and all of that stuff, you can get a lot further. It was also very different depending on who you're asking, like how they felt about us. So generally speaking, the white people in the town were much less interested in us being there. And the black people in the town were much more interested in us being there. And in some ways, it breaks down to this question of, do you think that the criminal justice system should be investigated in your town? And that was very split, not surprisingly along racial lines. So as as I think we told you, there's a special honor that's given to the Gentile of the Week, which is that if you have any questions about Jewish life, culture, anything at all, we are here, a certified panel of experts, to answer them for you. Is there anything we can tell you about Jews or Jewishness or Judaism? Well, the question that I thought of was, do you actually have to learn Hebrew to go through your bar mitzvah? And if you do, do you remember any of it? Or is it just sort of like cramming for a test? That is an Amazing question. Mark Oppenheimer, our resident bar mitzvah expert. Take it away. I have dad experience. And the answer is that what you learn for your bar bat mitzvah is a, a limited amount, some cases a lot more, some cases a little bit, of liturgical Hebrew. So you're learning how to chant prayers and then also to read biblical Hebrew from a scroll, which is very difficult because biblical Hebrew is written with no vowels and it's also chanted in a particular melody that's used only for that, that you otherwise would never know. So you have to learn a particular musical notation and you have to learn to read phonetically with no vowels. So it's very, very, very hard And then it's a lifelong skill if you keep it up because they need people in synagogue to chant Torah. However, in no way, shape, or form does it prepare you to take a cab in Tel Aviv or to order, you know, hummus in Haifa. But whether it's cramming or whether it's kind of sinking in as deep knowledge depends a lot on the particular kid, you know, how well they master this specific synagogue-based liturgical skill. So that's what I'm witnessing as a dad. But Liel, speak some truth. I think that's absolutely right. And yet I think there's, I mean, look, you could approach it and say, oh, what's the point? You know, if you're just sort of like memorizing my road, like you don't actually know the language. You don't actually possess any real skill skill. But I think there's some kind of beautiful mystical admission here that even just chanting words and sounds in a particular way, in a particular fashion, unlocks some of the mysteries of the universe, right? I think there's something very comforting in it. And I actually actually love it when a child who's clearly not understanding a good portion of, of what he or she is saying is standing there and 
still sort of speaking in a way that moves the world. I will say, I don't think I unlocked any secrets of the universe as a 13-year-old, as the one closest is, that was 20 years ago. Well, Long Island is different. (laughs) I felt like I was memorizing something and I could still sing the beginning of it. And I did it once on this podcast and someone wrote anything like, you remember it wrong. Like the, the, the thing that's seared in my memory is wrong. But that was a great moment on the podcast was you still had access, albeit you got it a little wrong, to the first few lines of this thing you did 20 years ago. Yeah, I could tell, I could do it right now. Rani Akara, lo yala de. That's, and that's wrong, but that's what I remember. And that's what I did for like 20 minutes on a stage, essentially, as a 13-year-old, a very uncomfortable age. But I think that your question is great because it really, to me, gets at the core of like sort of the hypocrisy is the wrong word, but like you prepare for something, this this rite of passage, and then it's for, I would say, 99.9% of children, not something you ever do again. Because I have not chanted from the Torah since. I mean, some people do, but I, I don't, I think the majority of people who are casually becoming bar bat mitzvah do not. So a great question, Madeline. We, before we let you go, you are from Milwaukee, right? Yes. Birthplace of, of course, Golda Meir, former prime minister of Israel. So very, you know, very important to our listenership, which means you get to tell us what's coming up on season three of In the Dark. (laughs) Nice try. Um, (laughs) We are hard at work at it. I'm really excited about it. We don't have a time that it'll come out yet. And it's been, of course, interesting to try to report a story in the middle of a pandemic, but I think it's going as well as it could be. And yeah, I'm excited to tell everybody about it, but I can't do that yet. <laughs> but thanks for asking. Yeah, thought I could get it with the gold of my ear flattery. You're going to have to move to Minneapolis for a year to get the answer to that question, I think, Mark. Fair enough. Well, my brother's in St. Paul. I'll get him on the case. Madeline Barron, thank you so much for being our Gentile of the Week. And everyone should go listen to In the Dark. And is there, I mean, they can find it on all the podcast platforms, obviously. Do you have a preferred platform to send them to? Where would you have them go to hear In the Dark? Wherever they would like to go. Whatever you prefer. You are platform agnostic, Madeline Barron. Thank you so much for being on Unorthodox. Thanks for having me. Mazel tovs. Leo, do you have a mazel tov this week? I would like to wish the most hearty mazel tov to the one and only, the wonderful and amazing Lily Bess Yael Leibowitz, my beloved daughter, who turned 10 yesterday. And I'm so very, very proud of her. Yom haled et sameach. Well, I don't want to upstage you a little bit, Liel, but this past weekend, we celebrated my grandma Seal's 90th birthday. So tell Lily she's got she's got a long way to go. She got 80 more years to grow into her uh, Jewish ladyhood. Everyone who finds out my grandma is like 89 and now 90 is just like, what? How is that possible? She doesn't look 90. She don't look 90. We're so excited for her. Your grandma is 42. She's three years younger than me. We had the most fun celebrating her this weekend. And I love Grandma Seal. I got three things. First of all, happy birthday to Marv Albert, who, according to the interwebs, is uh, was born Marvin Philip Alfrichtig, a great German name. Yes. And he turns 80 on Saturday. This Shabbat, raise a shot glass of schnapps to Marv Albert. Also, Tippy Pearl Turner, original member of the J. Crew, tells us that her son, Gabi, got engaged yesterday to the wonderful Dina Berman. And she says, we're all very excited to have something to celebrate after this challenging year. Us too, to the whole Pearl Turner Berman clan. A big mazel tov to you. Mazel tov. I have to say, in the smallest world possible, I believe that the bride-to-be is friends with our publisher, Morton Landown's granddaughter, Ooh. Karen, Ooh. who we know oh. and love. So, like, every, it's all connected. Uh, We're all I love it. Jewish geography, mic drop. And finally, I'm going to give my mazel tov to Israel for banning the sale of fur to the fashion industry this past week. Now, 
the hardcore animal rights people, which I'm adjacent to, but I wouldn't say I'm hardcore, point out this is not a complete victory because fur can still be imported for religious reasons. And so the strimals worn by Haredi men on Shabbat will still be perfectly legal. And it is true. But I want to say something about animal rights generally, which is, look, as the great David Clough, who's a British Christian animal rights ethicist, once said to me, he said, look, if we could just get all the Catholics going back to not eating meat on Fridays, right? If we could just take one-seventh of the meat consumption of one population away, that would be an enormous victory, right? You take these incremental victories. <clears throat> like the victory I always want is, let's just not buy factory farmed meat. End of story. If we could get there, that would be such a huge victory for people and for our animal friends. Okay, what about kosher ham though? Does that count? If it was organically, ethically raised, then yes. As long as it is raised by people who have a lot of righteous signage in front of their houses. <laughs> <laughs> the more signs in front of their houses and, no, and listen, stickers on their cars. Honestly, I know, Mark, I know we talked about this before, but, but as someone who's grew up kosher and then stepped away for a while and is, is now back in the game, I 100% equate issues of ethical treatment of animals with kashrut. I mean, I would now not consider even kosher meat that is just factory farmed to be something that I would consider eating. Amen. Can I ask a question? How much fur is on sale in Israel for fashion reasons? I was about to say, those harsh Israeli winters. Where Who's wearing fur? It was pointed out this is a minor victory. The fur industry is not big in Israel, except for strimals. Yeah, it's like, that's who's wearing fur. Look, you can say this is largely symbolic. At the same time, it's more than any state in the United States has done. And we are so woefully behind where we should be ethically on animal rights issues. And look, everyone listening to this could, who eats meat could, by spending 10 or 20% more, be eating ethically raised meat. There is meat that is ethically raised and kosher certified and is more expensive. But my they God. advertise on our podcast. And it's very delicious. <laughs> yeah, my God. Like that's if you have a few shekels like to not do that. And I realize, you know, everyone has their issues, right? And you could say, well, I should be spending more on this or that. But I think it's to Israel's credit that a coalition got together and foregrounded this one. So uh, a mazel tov to them. But back to the few shekels. I mean, this is, look, because kosher meat is expensive and kosher organic ethically raised meat is even more so expensive. That has really kind of reoriented our entire family, huge meat eaters all around, to consume far less meat. And that's wonderful. That's exactly, I think, how it should be. A mazel tov to the state of Israel for that. And oh yeah, for maybe giving us a few months without an election. And next thing, you should really ban clubbing seals, Israel. It's not cool. All those seals <laughs> in the Negev desert, they should be alive. Pray for them. Sar Fredman Ader, you have some mazel tovs for us? Yeah, but that was a wild journey. Uh, going back to the birthdays, I want to wish a happy birthday to my husband, Robert, whose birthday is this Saturday, much like Marv Albert. And a happy birthday to my newest nephew who was born today. Yay! So happy day birthday. And mazel tov to my brother, Asher, and my sister-in-law, Esther, on the birth of the baby boy. And finally, this past Sunday, my daughter Liana and I had our Taekwondo test. And you're looking at the newest red belt. Mm. Whoa. Yeah, so don't mess. As uh, Matt Sheeran said, it's proof that I can kick Leo back. Ooh. <laughs> very, very good. In Israel, we ban red belt. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We are going to be coming to you live again. Get us on your calendar. Email Josh Cross. That's Cross with a K at jcross at tabletmag.com. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt to buy some shirts to wear to those live shows. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast, on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Our associate producer is Robert Scaramucci. Our artwork by Esther Worker. Theme music by Golem online 
online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Kiddush this week sponsored by Avraham Engelson. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Deborah Marcus of Temple Emanuel in San Diego, California. And we come to you once again from the scattered locations of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. I love that you remember the smoothie fast story. That is like, I was doing a story on a mega church in Florida. I think it was Gainesville or Jacksonville, Florida. And I talked to the pastor backstage in his green room, right? Where he'd returned after preaching to 3,000 people about the importance. By the way, rabbis need green rooms. I think that would help our synagogue membership. Especially rabbis named Green. Rabbi Green needs, yeah. (laughs) He was taking off his, his headset microphone and we're kicking back and he like his lackey, his valet hands him a smoothie and he downs his smoothie. And I'm like, you know, Pastor Bob, you just gave a sermon on how you're on your 37th day of a fast that you're leading your whole congregation. And I, I assumed they were doing water, but you know, and he said, well, you know, I, I mean, by fast, I don't, I'm not going to give up all food. That wouldn't be healthy. It's just, you know, I do a smoothie fast. Some people do a juice fast. Some people do. Yeah. I was like, wait a second. What? I flew down here. For your smoothie fast, you know, it's different different strokes. I do a brisket fast. <laughs> His fast yeah. is light, light I beer for 40 days. I have a little bit of brisket here and there. <laughs> <laughs>